0: Before we go to our God's word together, let's ask him to open our eyes to see wondrous things out of it. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. Enlighten us now by the power of your spirit that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Philippians, book of Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1. In many ways, we've reached the heart of what Paul wants to say in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read together verses 27 through 30, 27 through 30, and that'll be our text for this morning's sermon. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own Word. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Paul, as I said, is coming in in many ways to the heart of what he wants to say, and if we know something about the writings of the Apostle Paul, we begin to recognize there's a certain pattern to the way he writes, a certain style he employs. Um, If you do a lot of reading, you begin to notice that about authors, that they have their own style. Um, They have their own way of going about doing things, and if you like their style, you probably tend to read a lot of their books. If you don't like the style, you might give up halfway through and move on to the next thing. Uh, But you begin to recognize that they have a certain style, they have a certain way of laying things out, and Paul has a very familiar style, a very familiar way of laying things out. This probably will not be news to you, that oftentimes what Paul likes to do in his letters is to first tell us what we need to believe And then move on to tell us how we need to behave. Um, He likes to tell the truth first, the truths that we need to believe. And then he tells how those truths ought to affect how we live. And that's fairly consistent in Paul's writing. That doesn't mean those two are hermetically sealed. He doesn't always just say exclusive truth and then exclusively how to live. Uh, But that's generally how he tends to move. Laying the foundation by the gospel, we might say, and then bringing us to the law. How ought we to live in light of those truths? And so if you can remember that, boys and girls, that Paul's style is what we should believe and how we should behave, Uh, you'll know that that's how he writes. That's how he writes almost every letter. And so we've been looking mostly at the things he's been telling the Philippians that they need to believe. Um, How they need to respond to the gospel now is what he moves to. And there's one main thing he wants them to take away. And he gets that in verse 27. Um, That's what's signified to us by Paul saying, only, this is the one thing, this is the important thing. Um, sometimes when preachers are going long and they get the sense that attention spans are waning, um, you might say to try to draw attention back to say, look, I just if you don't take anything else out of the message, take this one thing. Um, now this is not a very long letter and Paul's not very deep into it, so he's probably not saying it for that reason, but he is trying to highlight our attention. This is the main thing. This is the one thing. This is the only thing. Uh, when it comes to our behavior that I want you to take away, he's saying, of course, to the Philippian church, but also to us. He wants them to know how they ought to live. And he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the one main thing he wants us to take away. And that's in many ways what he's going to be unpacking for the rest of the letter. How do we do that? How do we behave that way as the people of God? And he begins to tell us how in this passage. How are we to live if we're to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, he says, first, we're to live as worthy citizens. Second, we're to live as striving soldiers. And third, we're to live as gifted saints. And that's how we want to think about how to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're to live as worthy citizens, we're to live as striving soldiers, and we're to live as gifted saints. Um, that word only, again, means take notice. Just one thing, we're to live worthy as citizens. Um, even though the word citizens is not used, that word life has, in its, has built into it this sense of living as a citizen. Uh, And Paul will return to that language explicitly in the third chapter when he talks about our citizenship. But what he's saying to God's people is live as citizens. Um, And that would be particularly appropriate to this crowd in Philippi um, because Philippi was filled with Roman citizens, Uh, Philippi was a colony of Rome. And so if you lived in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. So even though you were far away in Greece, you were still considered not just to be a Roman citizen in name, but really to be living on Roman soil. Um, Even though you were far away, you were still considered to be in Rome. Uh, Boys and girls, we might say it was a Rome away from Rome, Um, where you were living, where it was considered Rome, that, that, you know, our, our embassies kind of work that way. You can go to a foreign country, but if you go to the United States embassy and you walk in the door, you're on U.S. soil, whether you're in a foreign place or not. And that's how, that's how Philippi operated as a Roman colony. They were Roman citizens considered to be living in Rome, even though they were away from Rome. And they, they took pride in that citizenship. They took pride in the fact that even though they were so far away, they were living as citizens of Rome on Roman soil. And so it's no coincidence that Paul chooses to use that picture to the church and says, you know, our calling is to live worthily of the gospel, to remember that we are citizens. And citizens not of the place where we happen to be standing, but citizens of another place. That we are citizens of heaven in this world. Um, now, maybe we think of Southern California as heaven, but we know that Southern California really isn't heaven. It's, it's earth, it's away from heaven, but we live on this earth as citizens of heaven. And Paul's reminding the people of that fact. Your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is not in Santee or wherever other city you live in. In a sense, as a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. You're a citizen from that place. And we're to live like that. And in a profound sense too, wherever the, wor- wherever the church is gathered in the world, there is the soil of heaven. Right? Wherever the church is gathered in the world, that is an outpost of heaven in the world. Um, We remember that in worship in a particular way that we're lifted up into heaven, but there's also a sense in wherever the church has been placed by the Lord, it's an outpost of that heavenly kingdom. It's a colony of heaven. It's heavenly soil in that sense where God's people are gathered. And that's a profound truth that we should celebrate as well. Now, I realize that that can be something of a hard sell, on some Sunday mornings, to think of this as heavenly soil. Um, When you're trying to wrangle kids into the car and wear the socks you were just wearing and aren't wearing now, you know, all that, and you rush in and you carry all the cares of the world in here with you, it can be hard sometimes to think that this is heaven on earth. But in a profound sense, that's what Paul wanted the Philippians to understand. That's what God wants us to understand. God has not left himself without a witness. He's not left himself without a people. He's not left himself without an outpost in this world. And the encouraging thing is we think about the history of the church, those colonies keep populating. They keep growing. And we're looking forward to that day when it won't just be an outpost of heaven, but it really will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And all the soil will be heavenly soil. And Paul is trying to direct our attention to to remind us where we are citizens of and where we are living as Christians in the world, and we are to conduct ourselves as those who are worthy of such citizenship. Paul says, this is who you are, and you're to live as those who are worthy of being that. Um, These people who were Roman citizens living in Philippi were many of them ex-military, They were ex-soldiers who were given Roman citizenship and and property in a Roman colony as a retirement reward for their faithful service. Um, They were faithful citizens. They had been faithful citizens to the Roman Empire. And so again, Paul's using a picture that would have fit well with their circumstances. What are are faithful citizens to continue doing? They're to continue living like faithful citizens, to continue as those who are worthy of that citizenship. And of course, if God's people are citizens of heaven, what is the word of God telling us to do? Live worthily of that citizenship. Live like you are a citizen of heaven, right? Don't live to make yourself a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven, and so live like it. That's the essential Christian calling whenever God's word talks about sanctification. It's really saying to us, be who you are. You're a Christian. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're holy. Be holy. Right? Be who you are. That's what the church is being told. Live lives that are worthy of that citizenship. And in doing so, Paul is only echoing what our Lord himself said. Right? Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty eight. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's, that's something that Jesus began to talk about, living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul continues to say that theme. He says it to the Philippians. He says that to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says the same things to the Colossians in Colossians 1, verse 10. So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Um, commentators have point out to live worthily means to display it to advantage, neither disfiguring it nor contradicting it. Isn't that what we want as Christians, to live such lives that we never contradict the Christian name? We never want to do things in our lives where people look at us and say, I thought you were a Christian. How could you be doing something like that? We don't want to do things that contradict it. We certainly don't want to do things that disfigure the citizenship that we have. One writer said, and I think very aptly, men form their opinions of Christianity not so much from what they read in the book of God as from what they read in the book of the lives of Christians. When this book is fair and beautiful, they will be attracted. When it is blurred, they will be driven away. Example will break down opposition and produce conviction when nothing else will. Right? That's, that's the last reason we, we say in the Heidelberg Catechism that we do good works. There are other reasons that we give, but the last is so that our neighbors might be won over to Christ. That people would see our good deeds and glorify our father on the day of his visitation. Right? We want to live lives that are worthy of the manner of the gospel, that, that reflect it, that show it to good advantage. And we want to do that not just individually, but we want to do that together. When Paul says, only let your let manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that your is in the plural. He's talking to all of us. Now, of course, for any of us, we realize we all have to do that individually, but he's particularly highlighting that we need to do that together. This is not just an individual mandate for every little Christian. It's something we're to do collectively, that we're to do in a united way, that we're to do together. And to to sort of highlight the unity of what Paul's talking about, he, he talks about not just living as worthy citizens, but then he moves into a military metaphor, not just as worthy citizens, but also as striving soldiers. Um, again, he's, he's talking to people he knows his audience. He knows he's talking to a military town. And so maybe this is a, is a helpful way to talk to those of us who live in San Diego. Because we know that this is a military town. We've got a lot of active duty military. We have a lot of retired military. Uh, You know, There's the Marines, there's the Navy. There's military all over San Diego. And so we can say, yeah, we're a military town too. So we can kind of understand the sorts of things that Paul is saying. Because he's saying, if we want to understand how that united front is presented, he says, think of how soldiers operate. Um, Just as they were Roman citizens and would understand citizenship, so they were soldiers and would understand soldiering. And so Paul uses soldiering language as he moves on. Um, He wants them to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, whether he's there or whether he's not there, to hear that that's how they are living, and that they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Standing firm is the first direction that he reflects on as a military metaphor. Um, One of the first duties of any military unit is to be able to stand firm against attack. Um, And particularly, he knew in those days how militaries fought and the people he's talking to would know how they fought. You'd have to hold the line together. You'd have to be able to stand firm together. And he's saying to stand firm, you need to be of one spirit and one mind. You all have to be thinking the same way have the same shared goal and the same shared plan for achieving that goal. Right? Because if you have half of the soldiers in the line whose plan is I don't want to be killed and when they come my plan is to run. And you have the other soldiers in the line saying my plan is to overcome and when they come I plan to fight. If you're not of one goal and one mind you can't stand firm. It's not going to work if half of you turn tail and run. Right? You have to be Striving side by side, standing firm. And that's what Paul's calling the church to do. We all have to hold the line together. And in order to hold the line together, we all have to have the same goal. We all have to have the same plan. We all have to be working together for the same thing. We have to be of one spirit, we have to be of one mind. We have to have one objective, right? And so we're not just trying to stand firm, Paul says. Of course, there is an important sense in which any military unit has to be able to hold the line. But the military is not just there to weather attacks, right? It's also there to strive side by side going forward. And so Paul's saying that's also what's necessary if the church is to advance, is that we strive side by side, together. This is an image of an army on the advance um, fighting together for a similar purpose. Um, The imagery here is of a streamlined, disciplined fighting unit. They hold together, they advance together, and when they fight, they fight side by side. There's no cracking this unit. There's no finding holes in their line. They're all of one mind and one purpose. So what are we standing firm for? What are we striving for? Well, Paul tells us. He doesn't leave us in any suspense. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. Now when Paul says the faith of the gospel, that's a wide concept. Um, He's he's saying all of those things that encompass the truth of Christianity. Um, We might think of Heidelberg Catechism question 22 that talks about what do you need to believe? And we, we say everything is promised in the gospel, which is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. All of those things. That's the faith. That's the faith we're contending for. That's the faith we stand firm in. That's the faith we're striving side by side for. And we all have to be of one mind and one spirit in that. Otherwise, the church as an effective fighting unit doesn't work. right? If some of us are striving for the faith of the gospel of Christ, and that's what's important in our heart and minds. And other of us are really concerned about what the color of the carpet is. Um, that's where divisions start to come from. That's where the line starts to break down. That's where the mission stops being clear. Right? Dr. Horton has talked about mission creep. Things creep in that aren't exactly the mission of what we're trying to do. And then we aren't really standing firm. We aren't able to strive together. We get distracted. And Paul doesn't want the church to be distracted. He wants it to be a tight fighting unit with a clear objective. Like all the thousands of people who came in 1 Chronicles 12 to make David king, they were of one heart and one mind. And what did they want? They wanted David to be king. There's a sense in which that's what the church is doing. We're coming together with one heart and one mind, and we want to see Christ enthroned in our lives and in the world. And we want to see those strongholds in opposition to him torn down. Um, And so those are the military metaphors that he uses. Stand firm, strive side by side, and an important third direction is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be afraid of your opponents. Um, Paul uses a very interesting word for being afraid here. It's not the classic word for fear. It's actually an older Greek word for, that used usually when you spoke, spoke of horses being spooked. If you've ever spent time around horses, you know that horses can get spooked. Um, I don't do this often, but I was riding, I happened to be riding horses once, and we were galloping along, and there was a guy with a hat on, and his hat flew off. And it spooked the horse behind him when the hat flew off. And the horse bucked and, and ran off in a whole, another direction. Horses can get spooked. It happens when things go on that they're not really prepared for. And Paul, interestingly, uses that word and says, don't, as a church, let your opponents spook you. Don't let things happen that suddenly strike you and make you bolt and run. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. Um, Don't be frightened by your enemies for any reason. Um, Now, we know that not all horses get spooked at things. Um, You know, having, having that limited experience, I'm always interested when you watch a movie where there's cannon going off and the horses stand there. Or cowboy movies where they're shooting off the back of the horse and the horse takes it. You know, Well, how did those horses learn that? Well, they had to be taught to be like that. You had to train a cavalry horse to learn to stand there under fire and not get spooked by the fire. Um, or if you had a hunting dog, you, know, you have to train them not to be gun-shy when the gun goes off. They, they're not born like that. They have to be trained to be like that. But once they're trained, you can fire off a cannon next to that cavalry horse and he'll stand. He's not spooked by that. He's battle-hardened. And that's what Paul is saying to the church. You're battle-hardened. Right? I'm, I'm talking, Paul's talking to many people who are veterans of war. And I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not talking to a bunch of rookies. You're the ones who won the empire, right? You're the battle-hardened Roman soldiers. And when it came to warfare, you weren't spooked. Don't be spooked now as Christians. By your opponents, don't be frightened by your opponents in anything, because that too would make us an ineffective fighting force if we allow ourselves to be afraid by the opponents we face. And that's a real danger because our opponents are fierce. Sometimes we look around and say the world is the opponent; the world stands as the opponents of the church, but that's they're actually way worse, right? It's not flesh and blood. It's powers and principalities. And, and Paul is saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Strive together. Don't be afraid for the sake of the gospel. Um, because we don't want to be ineffective. Uh, Dr. Hal Jones said, you know, what, what has made churches ineffective he made an interesting comment in his commentary on Philippians. He said, while churches have always had to cope with unfavorable reactions from the world, it has been throughout history internal weaknesses which have contributed more to their decline than external opposition. It's it's been more internal, internal weaknesses when the line is not solid and the goal is not clear and people are afraid. Allow themselves to be spooked by the enemy's That we fear. And that shouldn't happen. Why? Because we are, as as John Owen put it, we are all brethren in the same family, servants of the same master, employed about the same work, acted by the same precious faith, enjoying the same purchase privileges, expecting the same recompense of reward and eternal abode. Why should we have any difference? And why should we be afraid? Paul's saying, you should be battle-hardened by now. You should know that there's nothing to fear. And when the church presents that front to our enemies, it's a terrible thing to behold. It's a frightening thing for the the devil to see. A church standing firm, striving together, and not being afraid. People used to tell the stories of how the Spartans would fight you know, the Spartans who are well-known in history for being a ferocious fighting force. And they said it was always interesting to see the Spartans because most armies were put together from volunteers, people who weren't soldiers professionally. And they said, you know, they'd give them a spear and a shield and they wouldn't really know much to do with a spear and a shield. And you would watch their ranks together and they were a little disorganized and you would see the spears in the air kind of waving. And they said it was like watching wind blow through a wheat field. And they usually couldn't fight unless they got themselves kind of worked up. And so one person would start shouting, they'd all start shouting and they would kind of get their dander up and the commanders would say, well, we better attack because they're ready now. So we better just go. And they said, if you watch the Spartans fight, they didn't do any of that. If you watch them fighting, their ranks were perfect and their, their spears were straight up in the air. They didn't waver. And when the other army would just start shouting to try to work up their courage, the Spartans never needed to do that. In fact, when they would go on the advance, the whole army would just start singing. And they would start marching. And when they got to a certain point in their song, the spears would just drop into the attack position all at the same time. And then they would keep singing. And then at another point in the song, the, the shields would all lock together in the phalanx. And so then all of a sudden you see this wall of shields and spears coming at you. And they're not yelling and they're not shouting, they're just coming anybody who saw it thought it was a fearsome thing to see. And that's what the devil and his hosts see when a church operates the way Paul's talking about. When we're standing firm for the faith of the gospel, and we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and we aren't afraid of what he's doing, what is it a sign to our opponents? What does Paul say? Not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Usually when the Spartans came at you, you got run over. And they tell stories of the 300 Spartans who held the, the gates at Thermopylae. Right? They were fearsome. And if you saw them like that, you knew you were about to get run over. That's what Paul is saying. When a church is striving like that for the gospel, the devil knows he's about to get run over. It's a sign to him of his destruction and of our salvation. Because who can make us into that except the Spirit of God? Who can make us into that except the captain of the host of God's people? Because when we're fighting like that, who are we really fighting like? We're fighting like Jesus Christ, who came into the world alone and had to fight against death and hell and the devil and strive by himself to overcome the world and in the midst of the attacks the devil poured on him, he stood firm and he strove ahead and he was not afraid. And he overcame. I love that in Revelation when we he says, you know, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. Why does he hold those keys? Because he took them. He took them. How are we free today? Because he broke into the devil's stronghold and set us free. He tied him up and he took what was his. We have a Lord that overcomes. And what Paul's describing here is fighting under Christ's banner, in Christ's manner. That's what the church is called to do. To strive together for the faith of the gospel. To be striving soldiers and fight as our Lord fought in the confidence that we will overcome as he has overcome, in his strength fighting with and for him. And finally, Paul says we're not just striving soldiers, but we're to remember in this fight that we are gifted saints. We've been given two precious gifts by our God. What does Paul say? What is the first gift in verse 29? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, Right? That's, that's the first thing that's been granted to us, that we should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a gift. That's the gift that will drive all of these other callings. That's the gift that will enable us to do the things that this passage is calling us to do because we have faith in Christ. We are united to him by that faith. So the first thing we need to remember as saints is that we have been gifted faith, to believe in Christ. Interestingly, Paul goes on to say, it's not just the gift of faith that we have received. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had and now hear that I still have, Paul says. We can easily think of faith as a gift. It's a little harder to think of suffering as a gift. Suffering is not the gift you want for your birthday. And it's not what you hope to find under the Christmas tree. It's hard to think of us, it's hard to think of faith, it's hard to think of suffering as a gift. And of course, there are sufferings that only our Lord could endure. We cannot suffer on the cross, He suffered that alone and for our sakes. But there are sufferings that He has given us to accomplish in this world and that we suffer for him, and that he suffers in us as his body. He is not separated from these sufferings. Calvin put it beautifully, Christ suffered once in his person, but he suffers daily in his members. His body, the church. That's the answer to those texts that talk about how we fulfill the suffering of Christ. It's not because he left something incomplete, but he's bequeathed suffering to us to suffer for his sake. And that's a sure sign that we belong to Him. right? That that, that battle is not easy. Battle is difficult. Those warfare images are there for a purpose. Battle is difficult. Suffering is real. Um, But it's suffering with Christ and for Christ. And when we go through that, we recognize that it's a privilege. I don't know about you. I, I aspire to be like the saints in Acts 5. 41 where we read they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name they'd been beaten up and they they go out rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name that's also what it means to live worthily of Christ to be given not just the gift of faith for his sake but the gift to suffer and so as peter says we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer our lord suffered don't think something unusual is happening to you. Rather say, I'm suffering for the sake of the Lord because I belong to the Lord. Because I'm, sa- I'm fighting the same battle that the Lord was fighting. Just as Paul says to the Philippian church, when you suffer, you'll recognize you're engaged in that same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We're fighting together in the same war. Our Lord fought and is fighting that war. We're called to fight that war. But suffering to us is a proof that we've been given that suffering, that we may suffer for his sake and glorify him even in the midst of that suffering. And so if we're called as a church to suffer for the sake of the gospel in this world, let's not think that something's gone wrong. That's what we're called to do. Just the same way an army shouldn't find itself surprised to be at war. That's what it's for. That's what the church is for, to do battle in this world. We're to be encouraged to remember that our Lord strove and he suffered and he overcame. And his church will strive and suffer and overcome. And one day the striving will be over and the glory will be ours. And so let's live lives worthy of that citizenship. Let's strive not just to believe, but to behave in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ for our good and for his glory together. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we do desire to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that we cannot do that without your help and by the power of your spirit. But we thank you that that is the gift that our Lord has bequeathed to us, that we might not just believe but suffer for his name and we pray that we would learn from this text to remember that we are citizenships from we are citizens from he- of heaven that our citizenship belongs there and from there we are awaiting a savior let us live lives lord by your power worthy of the calling we've received may we continue to strive together and be of one heart and one mind in this church striving together and standing firm not being afraid in anything by our opponents. And may the spiritual powers that are opposed to Christ see and be afraid. And might they realize that it's a sign of their destruction when the, when, the, when the powers of this world see the church standing together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and fighting in the manner he showed. May we strive as he has strived on our behalf and may we overcome as he has overcome. And may we trust in him always. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.